It is wonderful to be back here at 10th Presbyterian Church. I, I wasn't really prepared for the emotions that I would feel in seeing all of you. So why don't we open with a word of prayer? Almighty and merciful Father, as we open your word, we ask you by your spirit to open us to it. May my fallible words do no injustice to your infallible word. Grant that we may hear your truth, understand it, and take it to heart. We ask this for your sake and in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. One of the things that that interests me about the passage that was just read is that it is so unusual and unexpected. Uh, Luke carefully arranged the events in the Acts of the Apostle to show a a clean and clear trajectory um, of the gospel going from a small band of Jews in Jerusalem to larger and larger circles of people and places. But it's not so easy to fit this story into that larger narrative. Perhaps part of the answer is that God cares not only for categories of people, but he cares for individuals in all their messy uniqueness. The man in this passage is an anomalous figure, as we will see. In many ways, he was an unlikely person. He was unlikely in the flow of the narrative. He was unlikely in terms of geography. He was unlikely in terms of the thinking of that time. And he was unlikely for religious reasons. Yet the Lord sent Philip um, out of his way to encounter this man and to introduce him to Jesus Christ. Part of the point, um, perhaps part of the point of this passage is that if we, like Philip, are responsive, then God will extend the gospel to even the unlikeliest people around us. Now this passage shows us four ways in which we can be responsive as Philip was. So let's consider each of those four ways in turn. We can be, first of all, responsive to God's leading. In this passage and in the following chapters, God is clearly the driving force behind all of these events. In verse 26, uh, an angel spoke to Philip. In verse 29, the Spirit spoke to Philip. And in verse 39, the Spirit carried Philip away. And we see even more examples of this sort of thing, God pushing events forward in the next couple of chapters, in chapter 9 with Saul's conversion and in chapter 10 with Cornelius's conversion. God was pushing people in new directions, sometimes uncomfortable directions, and sometimes against their resistance. Now, I want to make sure, make it clear at the beginning that God is not like Google Maps. 
He does not give you turn-by-turn directions in life. Um, He gives us general commandments. He, He gives us principles and priorities. And he guides us in making wise and strategic decisions within those parameters. But there are times, they are rare in my experience, there are times when God does give us a specific push in a direction. And these nudges will be within those broader parameters he has set, um, but they might sometimes look like detours. Uh, My call to missionary service is a little bit like that. Uh, I was committed to going overseas as a missionary from uh, a fairly young age, from the age of 14, but I did not at all picture myself going to Japan. Uh, When a couple of people suggested that during my, my life, I just kind of waved off their suggestions. To my mind, Japan was modern. Japan was open. It didn't need missionaries. My goal was to be a Bible translator in Papua New Guinea or Indonesia, someplace like that. But due to a a health condition that I had, God closed the door on that possibility. And after that, as I thought about my future, I decided to act on a recommendation from my college days. I had majored in linguistics, and the linguistic majors were encouraged to study a non-Indo-European language Um, through a series of odd and seemingly random events, I wound up taking an evening course in Japanese. Now, this course was not very good. I really didn't learn much Japanese in it, but I learned a lot about Japan. Um, And I learned that behind this sort of gleaming facade that Japan presents to the outside world, there was a darkness, there was an emptiness, and there was this unrealized need for Jesus Christ. Sometime after that, the entire staff where I worked was laid off. And so I thought, this is my opportunity. This is my opportunity to finally get myself overseas. I need to figure this out. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take a weekend and just pray about what God wants me to do. Uh, I am not a person who by nature experiences certainty a whole lot. I tend to be very tentative. Um, But at the end of that weekend, I had absolutely no doubt that God was calling me to go to Japan. Um, That was not what I was planning. It was not what I was pursuing. But I had no doubt that this was God's direction for me. And God confirmed that again and again over the following weeks and months. That's not normally how God guides me. But he did this in this case because I needed that nudge. Uh, Let's see how this worked in Philip's experience. In verses 26 and 28, we see two different nudges. One is to go to a certain place, and the other is to engage a certain person. Um, So first, as Philip did, we can let God lead us to unlikely places. We see Philip do this in verse 26, in the beginning of verse 27, where it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, 
rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. The angel that's mentioned in this passage might be uh, an angel from heaven or it might be a human messenger. What's important is that it's an angel from the Lord and he carried a message from the Lord. Get up and head south. The thing is, Philip had been heading north. And this was a really significant detour. It was at least 50 miles out of his way on foot in the opposite direction. Furthermore, as Luke noted in verse 27, his destination was a desolate place. It was just a spot in the desert. It wasn't the kind of place that Philip might have chosen to go. It didn't seem like it would be a fruitful place for ministry. Now, Philip, you might remember, was one of what's called the seven. The seven were Greek-speaking Jews appointed to care for widows in the church there in Jerusalem. This was when the entire church was confined to a single city, the city of Jerusalem. But before long, persecution broke out and Philip and other believers had to get out of Jerusalem. Rather than fleeing to another Jewish city, um, Philip went to what Luke calls in, his, in the, the Acts of the Apostles, the city of Samaria. Now he probably meant Sebaste, which was built on the site of the original city of Samaria. And there Philip proclaimed the good news about Jesus to the Jews' despised rivals, the Samaritans. And amazingly, the Samaritans believed. This was, this was astonishing news. What this represented was that a 750-year rift within the people of God between the people of Judah and the people of Israel, was healed in Jesus. Philip began a thriving ministry among the Samaritans. Uh, and it was a ministry that he would continue for decades to come. But at this point, God was pulling him away from that ministry, sending him in the opposite direction to just an empty spot in the desert. It is entirely possible that Philip struggled in some sense to make sense out of this. I would. But Luke doesn't give us a hint that he objected. Philip was responsible, responsive to the call of God. Uh, I, I shared a little while ago about the story about how God called me to ministry in Japan. Um, but before I returned to Japan a second time, God took me to another country. It was another country in Asia. It's what we at that point called a closed country. And so I needed to be discreet and I needed to be, um, I needed to be discreet about sharing the gospel with people. But God did provide opportunities. However, whenever the seeds that I planted began to show signs of budding, there was this one man who always was there to, to crush that bud. Uh, he was a member of the state party, 
and he had been assigned to my classes um, to keep watch over them. Uh, I called him my monitor. And whenever a student said something that indicated a, a hint of a spiritual interest, he would bark in this loud voice and leap to his feet, and uh, everyone in the room would leap to their feet, and they would all point at that person and shout denunciations at him. Despite this, my monitor and I actually had a good relationship, and I was able to, to share my faith with him without being overtly evangelistic. But at the end of the summer, although I felt I had maybe softened the ground for some people, I left without seeing any fruit from my efforts. Twelve years later, I heard from my monitor. He was planning a trip to North America, and he wanted to meet me. Uh, the problem was I just could not. He, I was on the East Coast. He was going to be much further west, and I just couldn't travel at that time. Um, but I learned about his plans, his arrangements, and I did a little research, and I discovered that the man who was leading this professional tour was a Christian. And so I contacted him, and I told him about my monitor, and I asked him to take him under his wing. Um, several months later, my monitor contacted me again to tell me that he had become a Christian. The man who had led the denunciations of those who expressed a hint of spiritual interest was now a brother in Christ. So my little side trip to this other closed country had not been a waste of time after all. You might feel that you are exactly where you need to be. Um, you've worked hard. God has opened the doors for you. And you are here in Philadelphia thriving. That is terrific. But I would encourage you to still keep one ear open to God's voice. That voice is heard most clearly in his word, uh, but he sometimes speaks through circumstances or a news story or a friend. He has also been known occasionally to speak through a visiting missionary. There may be places that are, are not really on your itinerary that are in great need of what God wants to do through you. That place might be just a few blocks over, or it might be halfway around the world. Don't close your eyes be just because something is beyond the field of your vision. But God spoke to Philip a second time, not about a place to go, but about a person to engage. Let's pick up the story uh, in the middle of verse 27 here. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Like Philip we can let God lead us to unlikely people. And this man was certainly an unusual individual. He was a bit of an anomaly, frankly. 
thus far in the Acts of the Apostles, the gospel had gone out to Jews in Jerusalem, including Palestinian Jews, Diaspora Jews, and proselytes, that is, full converts to Judaism. Then the gospel spread to the rest of the province of Judea, and that included, as I mentioned before, those much-reviled Samaritans. Now, Samaritans were a mixed lot, but many of them, especially in the vicinity of Mount Gerizim, were in fact descendants of Israel. So in effect, they were long-estranged brothers of the Jews. And as we saw before, the gospel healed the rift that had separated them for centuries. To this point in the book of Acts, no non-Israelite, no Gentile had received the gospel. So far, the gospel extended only to the circumcised. And now we meet this guy, this unusual man. Ethiopia claims a long history of the worship of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some traditions in Ethiopia point to the Queen of Sheba and the son that she supposedly had with King Solomon. Whether those traditions are true or not, a variant form of Judaism has long been practiced in northern Ethiopia. Certainly, this man practiced a form of Judaism. He had, after all, traveled all the way to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel. Was he a Jew? Well, he might have considered himself that, but it's really unlikely that the Jews of Judea viewed him that way. Still, the author, Luke, um, he might have seen in him some further reunion of the Old Testament people of God in Christ. That's possible. That was, after all, what Philip's ministry in in, uh, Samaria had been all about. But even if the Jews of Jerusalem had wanted to accept an Ethiopian as a fellow Jew, they could not have welcomed into worship at the temple this man. Uh, That is because he was a eunuch. In some ancient cultures, um, men who worked closely with female royalty needed to be castrated. And that was the case with this man. The law of Moses, however, prohibited any man with mutilated genitals from participating in temple worship. Nor, even if he had wanted to be, could this man be circumcised. He was, in effect, forever excluded from the people of God. But there's this remarkable passage near the end of the prophecy of Isaiah, just a few chapters ahead of where he was reading, that looked ahead to a different day. The passage is found in Isaiah chapter 56, verses 3 to 8, and I would like to read that for you right now. Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 8. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, 
to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. That's a remarkable passage. And I imagine that these verses were precious to this Ethiopian official. Perhaps that's why he was reading from that very book of prophecy as he returned home. Perhaps he longed for the day that those verses spoke of. He didn't yet realize that that day had already come. The church at that point in history, as I said, was a church exclusively of the circumcised. This eunuch was not a prime candidate for admission at that point. He was likely not the kind of person that Philip had in mind when he thought about evangelism. But Philip, in obedience, ran to this chariot. Now, I have a longtime friend in Japan. Her name is Sue. Sue and her husband, Eric, are missionaries. And because of their love for the Japanese people, after the earthquake, tsunami, nuclear meltdown, triple disaster in 2011, they moved to a small, devastated town in northern Japan. They, they mucked out houses. They started a jewelry business to uh, provide employment for women who were widowed in the disaster. And that was a very fruitful ministry for them, slow and hard, but fruitful. But they eventually noticed that there was a group of people in town that was completely untouched by their efforts. They had been so focused on reaching out to the Japanese there that they didn't realize that there were others in town also. These were people brought in from other parts of Asia to keep the local fishing industry going. And their lives were strictly controlled by their employer. They stayed in the shadows. But Sue would occasionally see one woman at the local market. So she and Eric began to cultivate relationships with these people. Now, their employer uh, did not like his workers fraternizing with local people. So they had to be discreet and they had to be creative. These people, many of them were from, from Muslim backgrounds. They were eager for friendship, but they did not feel welcome in the town. And so Eric and Sue continued their outreach to Japanese, but separately they began quietly reaching out to these foreigners living quietly in the midst. They were not likely candidates for evangelism, for the ministry 
of Sue and Eric, but they saw it as part of their calling. Chances are you have some unlikely people in your day-to-day life. Uh, If not, uh, perhaps you need to shake up your routine a little bit in order to be among such people. People have messy lives, and not everyone looks like the ideal candidate for evangelism. So be alert when God brings people across your path, or maybe be ready to change your path a little bit uh, if God calls you to that. The passage we're looking at today is not a handbook for evangelism, but the Lord, the Lord set things up so amazingly that Philip really didn't need to do a whole lot. Uh, but he did do, Philip did do two things that we can take to heart. Just as, as Philip, we can be responsive to gospel opportunities when they present themselves. Uh, when an opportunity arises, the question is, what do we do? Philip did two simple things that all of us can learn from. First, he began by asking a question. And then second, he responded to the Ethiopians' questions with the gospel. And we can learn to do that too. So let's pick up with verse 30. Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Let's see. Like Philip, we can engage people with probing questions. The passage seems to suggest that the chariot was moving, not just sitting still. And if that's so, then Philip had only a brief moment to engage the writer. He was friendly. He wasn't confrontational. He didn't start by saying, nice weather we're having here in the desert. Um, Small talk was not going to cut this. He saw some common ground, an opening for a conversation, and he seized on it with a, a genuine, meaningful, probing question. And this is something that we can do too. It's really not that hard. There have been a, a recent, some recent studies that have showed that people think that deeper conversations with strangers will be awkward. But they actually find such conversations far more satisfying and enjoyable than they do small talk. Just be genuinely interested in hearing what that other person has to say. Don't fake it. Genuinely care. And in most cases, your conversation will go better than you expect. But that's just step one. Step two is that we can respond to their questions with the gospel. So let's read uh, verses 32 to 35 again. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth 
and beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. God placed Philip in the Ethiopian's, Ethiopian's path as he was reading a truly remarkable passage of the coming Savior. Luke quoted only a small part of that, but he assumed that his readers would be familiar with it and know the rest. I'm not going to take time to read that whole section of prophecy, but if you haven't read it yourself, please do so. Um, if you want to tune me out for a little while and look at it, that's fine with me. Okay, start at verse 13 in chapter 52 of Isaiah and read through to the end of chapter 53, the next chapter. Um, so that's fi chapter 52, verse 13 through the end of chapter 53. Um, let me just read to you two, the two verses with a little bit of context on either side. I'll read Isaiah 53, verses 5 to 8. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Now, those of us who know Jesus can recognize in an instant that this was written about him. He, was, he willingly offered his life in exchange for the lives of his people, bearing God's just punishment for our wrongdoing, um, so that we would not have to. And if you, in faith, receive the benefit accomplished by his death, then you will also share in the blessing of his resurrected life. We know who the prophet was talking about, um, but among the Jewish teachers of that time, there was a debate as to what this meant. It was a debate of the, about the very question that the Ethiopian had asked. It was not a dumb question, and I'm sure that Philip didn't treat it that way. So Philip began with those two verses, and he brought in that surrounding context, and I imagine he pulled in Isaiah 56, which talked about the eunuchs and the foreigners being welcomed into God's family. As the chariot driver carried them south toward Egypt, uh, Philip showed the Ethiopian how the whole Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ. He began with a, a simple but meaningful question that sparked a meaningful conversation, and he naturally directed the conversation to Christ. We can do the same thing. It takes just a grasp of the gospel, 
of what the good news is and just a little intentionality. We don't know how long, we don't know how far they traveled in the chariot, these three, uh, the driver standing, Philip and the eunuch seated. Presumably, Philip told the Ethiopian uh, quite a bit more than we read here and answered his questions. Eventually, they came to some water, and there is the next example that Philip sets for us. Um, we can be responsive to newfound faith. Um, verses 36 to 38. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, uh, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Philip could have said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're not Jewish. You're not circumcised. You're actually ceremonially unclean. And you haven't been through the new members class. You know, I am going to have to consult with the folks back in Jerusalem to figure out what to do with you. But of course, Philip did not do that. He recognized and he responded to this man's newfound faith. Now, two or three hundred years later, there would have been a longer process of instruction and evaluation before the baptism. Uh, and in Japan, where we work, um, baptism is taken very seriously and new, new believers need to clear a number of hurdles before they can be baptized. It take, typically takes a person several years from the time they believe to the time that they're baptized. I'm not saying that we should not examine someone for signs of repentance and faith. I'm not saying that we shouldn't instruct them in the basics of the faith. What I'm saying is that we should be responsive to faith when it appears. Years ago, I struck up a conversation with a man in a park in Evanston, Illinois. Um, I asked a question. Good start. He was happy to talk. And so I wound up explaining the gospel to him. And he responded positively. But I wanted to make sure that he understood. And I assumed that it would take some effort on my part for that to happen. And so I kept talking with him. And then finally he cut me off and he said, hey, I'm ready. You don't have to convince me. What do I do now? And so I led him in prayer and the angels rejoiced. Sometimes we, myself included, make evangelism harder in our own minds than it actually is. So be alert and be responsive to newborn faith. Now there's one more thing to learn from this passage. And that is that we can be responsive within God's broader calling. Verses 39 and 40. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in, uh, at Azotus and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Again, we see the spirit intervened now, the language isn't completely clear, but it, it suggests that Philip was kind of snatched away physically. We don't know what became, I'm sorry, uh, whatever happened, whatever the, the Ethiopian saw, 
it did not diminish his joy as he returned to his home country. And we don't know exactly what became of this man. We don't know whether he established a community of believers there in his homeland. We do know that there is a long history of Christianity in Ethiopia, uh, although the historical records of it go back only to the third century. Whether this man began that history, we don't really know. It seems clear that he returned to the place of God's calling in his life, but he returned a changed person. Philip, on the other hand, found himself in Azotus, near the southern edge of coastal Judea. And there he faced a choice. Where do I go? We have no indication that the spirit or an angel spoke to him, apart from just dropping him off there. Philip could have said to himself, you know, God brought me back to Judea, so I'll just stay here among my own kind. That would be easy. But he didn't do that. He began moving north along the coast through Judea to Samaria. And everywhere he went, he proclaimed the good news about Jesus Christ. Eventually, he ran out of Samaria. There's no more room up there in Samaria. He stopped in the, the northernmost city along the coast, Caesarea. And there he stayed. And he raised a family in the land of the Samaritans. Philip didn't need a sign from God to do this. He understood the commission that Jesus had given his disciples. This was a call to take the gospel to new places and to new people. Before he was taken to heaven, Jesus had said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Within that general call, Philip had found his personal calling to the Samaritan people, and he remained faithful to it. The fact is, for most of us, for for the most part, we don't need moment-by-moment instructions from the Spirit or from an angel. Jesus gave clear instructions to us when he said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Each believer has a part to play in this task. You have a part to play in this task. And maybe that part is here. Perhaps you've struggled and striven to reach this place. Ah, I'm finally in Philadelphia. That is Wonderful. But I would ask two things of you today. One, consider how your life is contributing to the task of making disciples of all nations. Do you need to make an intentional and strategic change in where you are or with whom you interact? Be responsive to God's broad calling upon his people. Uh, I made a quick count. And I found, I, I found that there are nearly a thousand churches within Philadelphia's city limits. In Nagoya, where my wife and I live, uh, a city that is 50% larger than Philadelphia, um, there are only about 140 churches, one-tenth 
as many if you adjust for population. And most of those churches are tiny and struggling. A dozen people, two dozen people. There is absolutely nothing like 10th in my city. So ask yourself, where could your life have the greater impact for Christ? It might be here. Uh, it might be somewhere else, even Nagoya, possibly. I, I just don't want you to leave that question unconsidered. Second, I said there are two things. Second, wherever you are, be responsive to the unexpected opportunities and the unlikely people God brings to you. Philip's life work was among the Samaritans, but he didn't ignore others. Not even such an odd and unlikely person as a eunuch from Ethiopia. So what is your part in God's grand calling? And who are the eunuchs, the seemingly unlikely people in your life? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you who were pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. You who brought us peace and healed us by your wounds. Impress your word upon our minds so that more and more our lives may reflect its truth and its priorities. So that more and more the grace you have shown us, we would show and declare to others. Help us to be deliberate in how we invest our lives. Help us to see and respond to gospel opportunities wherever we find them. Help us to see even the unlikeliest of people with your eyes, for we ourselves were once unlikely rebels. We pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.